You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I am very pleased to welcome today Father John Baer, a British Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian. Since 2020, he has served as the Regis Professor of Humanity at the University of Aberdeen. He is the former Dean of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, where he was the Director of the Master of Theology Program and Professor of Patristics, the Study of Early Church Fathers. He is the author of 12 scholarly works, including The Mystery of Christ, The Nicene Faith, The Way to Nicaea, and On Apostolic Preaching. One of his most recent works in the focus of this interview is Dr. Baer's new translation of Origen's First Principles entitled Origen on First Principles, a Reader's Edition. This scholarly work contains an extensive 88-page introduction, which addresses the various issues surrounding how Origen has been translated and mistranslated down through the ages. Because of Dr. Baer's work, we are now better able to assess and appreciate the thought of Origen of Alexandria, arguably the most towering intellect of early Christianity. Welcome, Dr. Baer, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Good to be with you. Very good to be with you, David. Thank you. Well, there is so much that we could cover when it comes to Origen, but if there is one thing I believe I've taken away from your book, it's that in order to understand Origen, we have to begin with the end in mind. Because with Origen, his theology and philosophy are always trying to make sense out of the beginning of things in view of Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God will finally be all in all. Could you tell us more about the way Origen's theology contemplates everything from the vantage point of the end? Yeah, but I think you can actually say it's not just Origen, but it's the whole of early Christianity going back to Paul and the evangelists, really everything. And one of the most important things to remember in all of that is that we are always reading Scripture in the light of Christ. Yeah? It is, um, we've become so used to having a book called the Bible where we've got the Old Testament, then we've got the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And because they're conveniently divided up like that, we think, well, Old Testament must be about all the things before Christ, and then we get to the New Testament, and here we find Jesus, and we've got the lives of Jesus in, in the Gospels, followed by Acts, followed by the letters of Paul. And we think, you know, that's the proper order in which to read it. But in fact, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he knew those same, what we call Old Testament, he knew those scriptures inside and out as a good first century Jew, and in mm-hmm. fact it led him to persecute, persecute Christians. Yeah. So, you know, his reading of Scripture, as he was reading it then, didn't lead him to Christ. It led him to persecute Christians. He then encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You know, we don't need to kind of get into all the mechanics of all of that. Mm-hmm. But the upshot of all of that is that he then realizes he's been reading Scripture wrongly. And he's now got to read it differently. He describes it in, in 2 Corinthians as a veil has now been lifted. You know, the veil which, which Moses wore as he came down the mountain so the Israelites would not see the end of the fading splendor. That veil now lies over Scripture for those whose mind has not yet been enlightened by Christ. But for those who've turned to Christ, the veil is lifted. 
Well, and we can now see Christ the whole of Scripture. So that's so, very interesting. For Origen, so, you know, he he so he when he read he didn't read the Old Testament the way we would look at it as the Old Testament. He read it as Scripture, which revealed Christ. Yeah, but that's exactly what Paul onwards is doing. Yeah, you know, the, the the veil has been lifted, and we find Moses and all the prophets were speaking about him. Christ died and rose in accordance with the Scriptures. You mentioned Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. But before that, the first verses in Corinthians 15, you know, I preached to you what I received. Christ died in accordance with Scripture. He was raised in accordance with Scripture. So that paschal act, Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, that act really is the end point in the light of which the veil is lifted and we can now read the whole of Scripture as culminating in Christ. So intrinsic to the very proclamation of the gospel is we are reading it from the point of view of the end. Yeah, And so Paul will then say things like, in Romans, Adam is a type of the one to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Adam, a type, you know, means um, like a typewriter, for those who still remember typewriters, when you hit keys and it creates an imprint. A right. type is what happens when you when you strike something and you make an imprint. Yeah, Christ is first. Adam's a type of the one to come. He's a foreshadowing. He's he's in the image. He's not the image of God. Christ is the image of God. Adam is made in the image. Um, so Adam's a type of the one to come. Someone like Irenaeus will describe Adam and Eve as being children because they don't yet manifest or they haven't yet grown into the full humanity as we see it in Christ. So you're reading everything in the light of the end. And we can also now see our own lives as, from the beginning, oriented to and culminating in Christ. And for the and for origin, the end in that First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight was that God would finally be all in all. Well, that is the it's not for origin. That's for Paul. <laughs> you know, very straightforwardly, <laughs> that is what Paul says. You know. Um, when all enmity has been uh, brought unto submission and all things have been brought unto Christ, Christ will submit everything to the Father and God will be all in all. That is an apostolic given. And it's emphatic, all in all, period. So origin starts with that, um, that kind of universal uh, and embodiment, if you like, of God being all in all, in all, yeah? So that, that's the culminating point. That's the final state of all things. And then we read from the beginning how all, everything from the first moment of creation is oriented towards that. Well, yeah? when, when Origen is uh, thinking about uh, creation and time, if I understood, if I understand him correctly, for origin, there was never a time when Father and Son and Spirit were not God because Father and Son and Spirit exist outside of time right. in a fiery reality which transcends time. God then, from the vantage point above time, brings the ages or the aeons into existence. So God, so to speak, from the fire of God's glory, throws creation down into the ages that it might mature according to God's purposes and then ultimately, at the end of the ages, creation will be completed and all rational beings will then exist with God in that fiery reality which transcends the aeons, and then God will be all in all. Is that yeah. a fair summary of Origen's understanding? Yeah, but, but just to make it a bit, a bit clearer for the, uh, for the listeners who, who are not familiar, 
the imagery of fire, well, that's a scriptural one. Yeah, our God is a consuming fire. You know, from from uh, Moses' encounter with God, all the way through uh, to Christ throwing fire upon the earth. Throughout Scripture, Origen points out, God is always spoken of in hot imagery. The closer you get to God, the warmer you get. You're inspired. You're you're, you're filled with a with a fire of divine love. It's an it's it's an it's a warming up if you like, yeah, to, to participate in that fire. Whereas he points out that um, falling away from God is always described in cold language, you know, and we still have it in our language. Somebody's cold-hearted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, that's still kind of implicit in the language. So that's kind of the language we're talking about. Um, so you talk about the devils and demons being cold. Yeah, they're icy, they're cold, they're, that kind of language. Um in the Psalms, it talks about God makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So always, it's, it's, don't think about it as being a material fire at all, but just realize that imagery is being used and it's kind of on a scale between hot and cold. Yeah, That's interesting. When, when I, didn't, I didn't grow up around church too much, but for me, when I did come around church, they always associated fire with the devil, that the devil... Oh, interesting. Was, yeah, you also have that. You also yeah, have that. The, the devil, eternal you know, fires of hell and all the rest of it. Yeah? Right, yeah. So, so, so there, wasn't a po- there wasn't ever a positive image of fire. Mm. And, and I don't ever remember, you know, really being taught or hearing about God being fire as in, a positive, in a positive way. Although it's a purely scriptural image. Yeah, our yeah. God is consuming fire. There you go, and it is still there in our language. As I mentioned, you know, we, we would talk about somebody having a cold heart. Yeah, or alternatively, somebody being inflamed with a love of God and a love of the neighbor, burning with love for God. You, yeah, you know, that's quite normal expression. Well, the thing about time was very enlightening for me. Um, yeah. we were used to thinking about time as a linear thing that maybe God is involved with in the same way that we are. But for origin, you know, you can see that for origin, when the end of the ages were, were over, that wasn't the end of everything. That was just the conclusion of the work of the aeons or the ages and that God is the God of the aeons and the ages. Right. You know, absolutely fundamentally for all early Christian writers, space and time are measurements of creation. Yeah, and God exists outside of space and time. They're measurements of that which he's created. Right. So at the end of the ages, it's the end of the ages isn't the end of everything. It's no. the end it's the it's the end of that of, of, of creation. <laughs> it's just the end. Yes, it's just the end of the of the ages. I thought that yeah. was really important. Yeah. Another thing about creation is that from the way that Origen viewed creation, which is I think what we find in scripture, we in especially in Colossians where Christ is declared to be the one in whom all things in heaven and on earth were created through and for the visible as well as the invisible, whether thrones or lordships or heavenly powers or archons, as they were called in the Greek. So for origin, that would mean that all persons, all angelic beings and powers, archons, whatever we might say, preexisted in totality from the beginning to end in Christ. Everything they would ever be was already done and realized in Christ from before the ages, from before time itself. So uh, as Origen saw it, then 
the pre-existence of all beings were in Christ, and that would have been distinctly different than the way Plato would have understood the pre-existence of all souls. Yeah, let's not get into Plato, but uh, uh, because that's quite complex. But I uh, 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 kind of want to nuance the way that you were describing it uh, just then for Origin. Pre-existence doesn't really mean prior existence on a temporal horizon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's more if we're understanding everything from the point of view of the end, which is the only way to do Christian theology, then we can talk about you know. The whole of created reality coming to be in God so that God is all in all. But the, the pre-existence really would be the forms and the archetypes of all things that were to come to be in time. Does that help? Well, the, the problem in Origins Day was how, how do we explain that some people seem to have such a sorry lot in life, while other people yeah. have such a wonderful lot in yeah. life. And Origin wanted to be careful not to blame God for this, yeah. but that, that that somehow all that had ever would ever happened had already happened in a certain way in Christ before the beginning of creation, and so that's the way he understood. I'm not that. sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that he's talking about a pre-existence in terms of a prior existence that we did something before we came to exist in this world. It, that was the problem really with more... Kelsus. That well, that'd be the problem with with the Gnostics, the, his opponents, the Gnostics. Not so much Celsus, but certainly with the Gnostics. Um, you know, due to some kind of prior uh, trauma or tragedy within the Pleroma, uh, the material world came into existence with everyone finding their different places within it. Yeah, that's what he was arguing against. God is not doing that, but rather he will talk about God's foreknowledge of what we will do leaving the freedom to ourselves as we are enacting it within our life in this world. But that foreknowledge is only spoken about from the point of view of the end. And so that's the way Origen works out that theodicy problem. That's how I think he works it out, yeah. Okay. Uh, so so, so let's, make it, let's make it really concrete. Let's make it really concrete. Um, you know, if Christ is an image of God, as Paul says, Colossians 1.15, then to be in the image is to be Christ-like. Yeah? Okay. Straightforwardly. That's what Genesis talks about. God created a human being in the image. Well, the image is the one Lord Jesus Christ. So, so you're putting it in parallel. Let's talk about what I was talking about earlier. Adam's a type of the one to come. Okay? Um, but that requires growth. It requires growth on the part of the one who's come into being. Okay? So mm -hmm. let's take it one step further back. Um, if, like Aristotle, you were to say that a human being is a rational animal or a two-legged animal that can walk and talk, well, that's not how we come into existence. We come into existence as infants, yeah? and we've got to grow. It's not because there's any imperfection in the newborn baby, assuming everything's healthy and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not because there's any imperfection that that newborn baby can't walk and talk. It's got to grow. It's got to exercise. And part of the exercising is falling down, getting up, getting bruised, getting up, learning how to walk and all the rest of it. So it requires growth from the newborn baby to be a two-legged animal that can walk and talk. If you, like Aristotle, define a human being as a rational animal, well, most toddlers 
are not really rational animals. They can, right. They've learned to walk and talk, but they've got to grow more than to exercise a power of reason and self-control and all the other kind of things. If to be human is to be like Christ, to manifest all the divine virtues, to live by laying down your life for your neighbor, following him, taking up the cross, and all of that as an expression of love, well, that requires even more growth. It, it, it's not that you know God creates everything, everything is as it should be. Rather, God creates it, remembering we're reading in the light of the end, where the end is given in Christ. We can now see Adam's a type of the one to come. It takes time to grow from Adam to Christ. It takes time to grow from being newly born to being a mature human. It takes time. Yeah? Right. And in that time, with the example of walking, you know, have, you, you don't learn to walk apart from by falling down and getting up. Um, the parent would know that this is what the, will happen to the child as they learn to walk. Yeah? But the parent's foreknowledge of that is not the cause of the child's falling down. So that's how I think he would explain it. Okay. Well, that's, that's important because sometimes people sort of accuse origin of having a, a, a form of pre-existent thinking, a pre-existence yeah. that, that, that it is a little bit hard to really understand. Another thing about yeah. uh, origin, But you've got to be really careful. That's why, that's why I kept on differentiating pre-existence and prior existence. We can say pre-existence in God, but God is outside time. And so pre-existence in God doesn't mean a chronological prior existence. An important distinction to make. Yeah. In in Platonic thought, ages or aeons would proceed on without end, and everything would repeat itself forever, as I understand it. But in the thought of origin, the ages do come to an end, and then there's an apocatastasis or a restoration, but the end will only be like the beginning, uh, because both the end and the beginning feature a unity in God, but in the end, there will be an enlightened and mature unity. So, so, so two things like that. So a newborn baby and the same human person in mature adulthood. They mm -hmm. are like, but they're not the same. It, or, or rather, they're the same, um, but there's been growth. Yeah. So the, the beginning is like the end, but it's not the end because there's been a path traversed across that journey. It's the same one we're concerned with. So there's undoubtedly likeness, but the newborn baby who was wailing and crying and waving their arms and legs about is now walking and talking and hopefully exhibiting love. The beginning and the end are the same, but there's also been a path traversed across it. Right. Okay. Now, one further thing. When, when we talk about ages, you know, people often read Origin and he'll talk about, uh, you know, an endless succession of ages or, 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 or a delimited succession of ages and worlds and, and that kind of thing. Right. Um, we, we, tend, we tend not to hear him in the same way that we would use those words. After all, we're quite happy to talk about the seven ages of human life. What would the, what would the seven ages of human life, just the infant? Oh, and... that, that, that's a, um, a category which goes back to Hippocrates. And, you know, Shakespeare talks about the seven ages of life, you know, infancy, oh, okay. boyhood, you know, youth, mature, maturity, whatever, the different right. ages of life. We, we're happy to talk about the different ages of a human life. Yeah. When we talk about, uh, we're, we're also have to use the word world in um, the ways which we perhaps should hear origin. You know, the, 
the world of the Romans has now gone. You know, the Victorian world or the, the world of the Middle Ages. I mean, we use the word word world like that, yeah, um, which really means, I don't know if you want to put it this way, a particular space-time configuration. Right. The way the world was in the Middle Ages is different to the way the world is after the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah? We could even talk about it as being different worlds. We clearly don't mean different planets. I guess what I'm trying to do is make a distinction between Origin and Plato on this. Because did, did Plato think that things that, that they would just that the ages would continue on forever, repeating themselves? He's often presented that way, but you know it's a com- it's a common truism also of Greek ancient Greek thought that anything that has come into being will pass away. So how do you see Origin? Did well, what's often said is that Origin was a Platonist. Who, who brought Platonic thought into Christianity. Yeah, but what does Platonic thought mean in such a statement? I mean, we, we could spend a whole time talking about what uh, Plato might be doing in his works and the way that the category of Platonic thought has been used as a straw man or as a polemical opposite. But mm-hmm. is that really fruitful? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> by, I think... by much, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I just that 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 Origen is thinking in Christian distinctly Christian terms, but he's in an environment where there's a lot of philosophical thought that's already that's already happened. And so what he's trying to do from the way I read him is to create a, a, a philosophy that it's but's theology and it's Christian, uh, but it's in it's also in that in oh. that world. So let, let, let's take an example of that then. Plato's ideas are the forms or the ideas that are the models for everything. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The way that Platon is often presented is that these forms or models exist somewhere else. And what we have in material reality is but a pale shadow of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be kind of a standard way of presenting Platonism. It's absolutely not clear at all to me that that is really what Plato is talking about as if the forms of the models exist somewhere else. No, they are that which is manifest within creation, yet distinct from it in thought, but not somewhere else. That I can look at two trees and say they're both trees is not because they're both shadows of something somewhere else called the form of a tree. It's because they both manifest a form of a tree, which doesn't exist somewhere else. Well, one of the ways that Origen has been misunderstood is that his original Greek manuscripts were destroyed in the controversy surrounding him in the 6th yeah. century. So this means that Origen's works were only known through Rufinus' Latin translation of Origen, and then Rufinus confessed that he had smoothed over some things in his Latin translation, and then this all became more confusing because in the 20th century, when Paul Coetzschew altered Rufinus' Latin text, um, he inserted phrases from Origen's detractors, and then it was Coetzschew's intentionally corrupted Latin text of Rufinus' altered text, which became the basis for the standard English text that yes. we had. And so this complicated backstory is one of the things that prompted you to do your work. Yeah. yeah. So we have, um, I mean, we do have works by Origen in Greek. We've got quite a number of them, not as many as he wrote, obviously. And we've got them in Latin translation from Rufinus and also from Jerome, 
and most of them are uncontroversial apart from the work on first principles. And that's where Jerome and Refinus fell out. They were best of friends. They became the worst of enemies thereafter because of the issues regarding the translation of all of that. Now, you're right that in his prefaces to the translation of On First Principles, Refinus does say that he smoothed out, as you put it, he smoothed out some passages. But mm-hmm. he then specifies that he, spe- that he smoothed out some passages pertaining to the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah? So the way that Origen might have expressed himself in the 3rd century is not the way that he, at the end of the 4th century, would have found congenial, perhaps. Yeah? Okay. Although it is striking that Jerome, although he's got a lot of bluster and viciously attacks Refinus for his work of translation, Jerome is remarkably short of any concrete examples where Refinus has um, abused the text in any way. Yeah, so it's a, a more matter of bluster than reality and all of that. Okay, but what's really interesting is that although Refinus says that with regard to Father, Son, and Spirit and passages pertaining to that, he then goes on to say, whenever Origen seems to say something unusual about the soul, I've left it in, I've left it as it is, because these are incidental to the faith. Okay. Which which is really interesting because they were the points of contention in the 5th, 6th century in the Origen's controversy, which resulted in him being condemned his work's being destroyed and all the rest of it. And then the editor that you mentioned, Paul Kirchhoff, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, he determined that the condemnations of Origen really reflect Origen's true thought. Yeah, You actually find Origen's true thought in what the people who were condemning him said about him. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then with that as his basis, he then set about restoring the text and for those who are listening, I'm using inverted commas with my fingers here. Right. Uh, the, the, he, he restored the text by putting in the passages from, refi- from Origen's opponents into the body of Origen's own work, yeah? which is <laughs> dubious by any standard. And then that became, and he often made these passages up by cobbling together sentences from different, different authors to produce what he thought was Origen's teaching and put it smack in the middle of the text. And then that was what was translated. And that's what most people were reading during the 20th century. Having taught that from that, uh, it was translated by Butterworth. Having taught from that for a decade or so, I became increasingly dissatisfied with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Both because of these passages that have inserted, but also because they broke up the coherence of Origen's work. So I produced a new edition, a new translation of the work, following what Rufinus gives us, because in fact, that is the only text that we've got. Well, so I think that's what I would like to I would like to really recommend that anybody interested in origin would get a copy of your work here, this readers edition of On First Principles because the the introduction is 88 pages long and you go in great detail into all of this and it really helps the reader set this up and then you go into great detail on all of these issues. It it just gives a much clearer understanding of origin and then the history of of on first principles yeah thank you and i I identify as a uh, christian universalist so Mm -hmm. from my vantage point origin did not invent the idea that god would ultimately be all in all 
the idea of God ultimately being all in all comes from scriptures, as we've talked about in Paul, and was noticed by other early church fathers, such as Gregory of Nyssa. What made Origen unique and controversial was the way in which he tried to work all of this out in a consistent and speculative philosophy, which he thought was necessary if Christianity was going to compete in a world in which the acquirement of knowledge through philosophy was very important. So Origen, in my view, did not invent the idea that God would ultimately be all in all, but he did try to make a philosophically coherent theology out of it. Is that absolutely. is that fair? Totally, absolutely, yeah. And he wouldn't. He might not have called himself a Christian universalist because that term didn't exist, oh. and he just in, in in his day and time he was just doing theology in in what he thought was a co- coherent way, trying to really protect the goodness of God and to really show the goodness of creation as he read it in the in, right. in Scripture. Right, which is fundamentally from Paul onwards, uh, Christ has destroyed the last enemy, death, by his death, so turning death inside out so, so that it's a means of life. You know, if you preserve your life, you lose it. If you, if you lose it for my sake, if you take up the cross, if you lose your life for your neighbor, for the kingdom, for, for, for all of these things, you actually enter into life turn death inside out, the enemy now becomes a means of victory. Um, And all of this then culminates in, as Paul puts it, same chapter, 1528, God becoming all in all. Now that is what the apostle proclaims as being the key matter. Then you understand everything in that light. So you don't start at the beginning and then work out what was God doing and this, that, and the other. You start at the end and you say, how has everything from the beginning been oriented towards this end? Christ is a full human, all the things we were talking about. Well, when I'm visiting with people about my understanding of Christianity there, one of the things I, I, I do like to say to them is the way that I'm putting this together is not new. It is. It's. Uh, it's in line with some uh, early church um, fathers, or, or, and perhaps the greatest intellect of early Christianity. So that the would it be fair to say that the first maybe systematic theology or the first systematic theological philosophy of Christianity that was ever put together was done by Origen, and yeah. that it was universalist in in his understanding of things. Yeah, for Origen, definitely. Okay, so but then there was a controversy surrounding Origen, and and there, then there were others that took his idea, and they were he Origen. I didn't. Your book really helped me to see this. It's hard to understand what a dominant figure Origen mm-hmm. became in that world. That he wasn't just a scholar that somebody found that that he was famous in his own day, oh, and then absolutely. even more, and then even more famous afterwards, and then. People wanted to take his ideas and run with them, and there became sort of a pro-originist camp and an anti-originist camp. And then there was confusion about what was the difference between an origin and an originist. This all became very complex, and then it all comes to a head in the 6th century. So could you give us just a a little bit of a rundown about how that all developed? Um, You're right about the significance of origin. He was actually the first international theological rock star. Yeah. He, yeah, he was invited all over the place to in, to to teach to investigate false teachings by the emperor by the emperor's mother to instruct her about matters of the faith. I mean, he was everywhere, all across the Mediterranean, being called upon by different people for all of it. No, no doubt about that. Um, in the following century, 
Athanasius and the Cappadocians, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, looked back to him as being, you know, the lodestar of theology. Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory the theologian, calls him the whetstone, the, the sharpening stone of us all. In some ways, because we've got 1,500 years of subsequent theological reflection, we, we tend to think about them in abstract or, 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 or not in the right historical perspective. They are all reading Origin because there wasn't that much else to read. We've got so many books on our shelves to read. They were reading scripture and the writers before them, among whom preeminently was Origen, no doubt about it. Um, he came into conflict with Demetrius in Alexandria during his own time. Uh, there were controversies at the beginning of the 4th century regarding him. There's a controversy at the end of the 4th century, initiated really by Jerome Epiphanius, brought in Rufinus into all of that. Um, and then there were further controversies later on. Um, but all these controversies have got much more proximate, immediate causes than Origen himself. Origen is uh, the one through whom they're battling it out, whatever the, their particular issue is. Um, and then when you get into the 5th, 6th century, after Evagrius, and then after some other figures in the Palestinian desert, Stephen Basudali and other, there were all sorts of things going on with regard to that. I mean, and it gets really complex with regard to all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Origen ultimately gets condemned, and he gets condemned for things which must be condemned. But the question is, did Origen actually teach them? Yeah. So mm-hmm. let me give you one example. One of the things that, that was uh, con- uh, controversial during his time and thereafter was the idea about the salvation of the devil. Right. Yeah. And the way I understand it is that Origen would say God would be all in all. There's no exception to that. That's, that's, that's simply an, an, an emphatic universal statement. God would be all in all. If the devil's going to be saved, however, it won't be as devil. Yeah. You know, in early Christian theology, the devil's a fallen angel. Everything made by God is good. This particular character, for whatever reason, there are all sorts of kind of speculations regarding that, fell. Um, but to say that he cannot be saved would ultimately result in some kind of manichaeism. You know, that God didn't create everything, everything's capable of salvation. You know, that that's just fundamental to Christian theology. But you wouldn't say that he's saved as the devil. If that's saved, it would be as the one that God created him initially. Yeah. So, so that kind of problematic of um, being very precise about exactly what it is you're talking about um, leads into all sorts of controversies. And there sense? was, yeah, and I'm going to do some more uh, work on this Fifth Ecumenical Council, yeah. but what's clear to me is that that because of what happened at the Fifth Ecumenical Council and the controversy around origin, the idea that Christians could affirm that God would ultimately be all in all got diminished, especially in the Western in Western mm-hmm. Christianity. It became uh, almost impossible for people to publicly proclaim that they believed that God would ultimately be all in all. And- Right. So, so, so frameworks within which we think we're doing theology have changed through the centuries. Yeah, and that's really one of the key differences between 
the early period and the later period, especially, and maybe after the 6th, 7th century, especially in the second millennium. I mentioned earlier that, you know, we now have the book called the Bible as mm-hmm. a single book, which no Christian had in the early centuries. Yeah. And we read it, you know, Old Testament, followed by Life of Jesus, followed by Acts, and so on. Right. And we read it from the beginning rather than from the end. Yeah. So we start with Genesis. God made everything, everything's good. Then there was the fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in Genesis 3. And then you've got Christ's work of salvation, which, if you read it like that, almost makes Christ's incarnation work on the cross plan B. We messed it up. God has to respond in Christ in order to fix our mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And then only for those who accept what he did, however you want to pass that out, only they will be saved. Yeah? That, that, that's the kind of framework within which a lot of modern theology works. Right. Okay? For the early period, before you've got a book called the New Testament, you're reading Genesis onwards in the light of it being unveiled by Christ. You've got the end point given. Christ has destroyed death by death, bringing life to the end that God will be all in all. And now you read the beginning in the light of the end. This is the end. How is the beginning oriented towards this end which is given? Well, this this is a fundamental way in which I think you're helping us to learn to read Scripture with the early fathers, right. and, and, and that with, really and with Paul and with Paul, with with with, uh, with the apostles and the evangelists. This is how they are proclaiming the gospel through the language and imagery from the whole of the scriptures, which they now say has been fulfilled in Christ, because they're talking about Him. Now, would it would it be fair to say that in the Eastern in the Eastern Orthodox Church, that the memory of the early Greek fathers and this way of reading scripture was still was still retained so that the Eastern Orthodox Church is better able to have a conversation more like in the early centuries than is the Western Church. I think um, liturgically it's still kept that way. So the, the, the kind of the liturgical celebrations, the, the way of celebrating, the way scripture is used in the celebration, the way the hymnography works by using a scriptural image in the light of Christ, the way the iconography works, and all of these kind of things is still keeping that early Christian framework, style, memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with regard to the, the way that we often do theology, we're just as much a product of our time as anybody else. We're all in time, yeah. Well, there, you, you know, know, there are people. There are people that this might be a parody, but they get tired of feeling trapped in the Western Augustinian tradition, and they want to go and investigate the Eastern Orthodox Church because they think that it has a better understanding, a better approach to script, the reading of Scripture, and a better approach to understanding salvation as a theosis. And just more of a connection with some of the early Greek fathers that, especially Protestants, don't have much, don't seem to have much access to. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. You know, if you want to put the biggest, greatest figures in the East and the West in the early period would be Origen and Augustine. They were the the towering figures. Mm Mm-hmm. But what, was the, what, what happened in the Greek East thereafter is that you had equally towering figures in the following centuries that were able to 
develop Origins work in the way that it needed to be developed. And that didn't really happen quite the same way after Augustine. So the Eastern Church can, can sort of continued a discussion of some of Origen's ideas in a way that yeah. the Western Church did not. Would that be fair? With the, the Western Church with respect to Augustine, yeah. Well, I want to uh, thank you, Dr. I mean, Beer, for... I mean, obviously, obviously, Augustine's thought gets taken up and developed in many different ways, you know, right. with, with Thomas Aquinas and whatever, and later on. But with, with Origen in the third century... In the very next century, you've got you know the Cappadocians, and in, in two centuries after that, you've got Maximus. There's, there's much more of a continuity of of continued engaged reflection and discussion. Well, that concludes the first part of this interview with John Bear, where we've been discussing origin, and now we'll move on to the second part of the interview next time to continue the discussion around Gregory of Nyssa. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.